The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 104.5 FM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and 107.7 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And, so it's very- and now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And it's a big week in technology, and everybody's talking about Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act. And does it give Facebook and Twitter and Google the right to censor content on the web? And how should it be modified? I'm going to talk about the controversy and talk about specifically what Section 230 is. It'll be an interesting conversation. This week, we also have a very special offering. We're going to play the audio from the first YouTube video. And it was made by the founder of YouTube. A bunch of different and you, you certainly are going to expect it to be a very insightful video. It's been viewed 116 million times. We're going to talk about the open source culture. This is open source software culture. There's a, uh, I think it's a, it's a great movement, and I'll talk a bit about it and what it means to be an open source person or an open source contributor. This week, we're going to feature Paul Barron. He's the inventor of packet switch networks. He's one of the luminaries that actually helped develop the core protocol that drives the Internet. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Cheryl in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, last night I checked my Yahoo spam folder and I found that it had some of emails that I had been waiting for, and they'd been put in the spam folder. I, you know, requested a few newsletters from websites that I like, and all the newsletters were shot straight to the spam folder. Uh, what can I do? Because I'd rather have these newsletters show up on my inbox. I don't like to have to be searching for them all the time in in, in spam. Well, Cheryl, there are many technical reasons that emails get put into spam or put in the junk box. But the, um, the most common reason is that the uh, internet service provider uh, who's, provo- who's looking at your emails just probably thought this was promotional material and they just threw it in the spam folder. But you can fix it very easily. All you have to do is add the address the, the, that it's sent from, whatever newsletter it is, whatever that from address is, what it's sent from, add that to your contacts or to your address book. Once you do that, any email from that particular contact or that particular email address will not be put into spam. So here's how you do it on your Yahoo account. It's fairly easy. Open up one of your emails that you found in the spam folder. Then hover your mouse pointer over the email address or the sender's name that's located in the sender field until a box pops up. And then on the box, or put something called add to context. Just click on add to context and then hit save. 
At that point, that particular email address is one of your contacts, and it will never be put in the spam folder again. You, you, it's the same process for Gmail or any of the other emails, e email systems. You do the same. It's a very similar process, and you can eliminate this problem forever. We got an email from Steve in Richmond. Dear Doc and Jim, I got a custom-built gaming PC that I bought in January 2014. It came with Windows 8.1, and then I upgraded it to Windows 10 when I could do the upgrade for free about a year ago. Now I want to upgrade the machine itself, and, that, and, I'm, and I just bought a brand-new motherboard for my gaming machine. Now my question is, Windows 10 will think this is a new computer, and I won't be able to activate it. How am I going to be able to activate the account on my gaming machine with the new motherboard? I'm really worried about that. Well, actually, this is a very excellent question because, in fact, if you would change the motherboard and not, and not do a few preliminary steps before you did it, you would not really be able to activate it because you are true to form. Windows would think it was a new machine. So what you want to do is Windows actually has a, um, I mean, this is a common problem. People upgrade their motherboards. And Windows has a tutorial that tells you exactly what you have to do before you switch out the motherboard. And, um, and it's, it's called, uh, my, it's in the Microsoft support section, and it's called reactivating after hardware change. And so you can either just Google for that. Microsoft support reactivating after hardware change, or you can wait for my show outline to, to show up on Monday, and I'll have the link there. Now, what basically this, uh, this tutorial does, it has you link your Microsoft account, your, your Microsoft license to your Microsoft account, that link rather than directly to the hardware itself. So then when you put in the new hardware, you go into to your Microsoft account. It knows that this is you, and then you can activate it on one machine from your account. And so they, they've got a process for doing it. It's very easy to do, but if you do not make those steps in advance, it'll be difficult for you to install Windows 10 with the new motherboard. Best of luck with that new machine. We got an email from Mark in Richmond. Dear Tech Talk. I live in an area that's prone to frequent electrical storms. Now, I've always been fanatical about keeping my electronic stuff plugged into surge protectors, but I heard the other day that surge protectors go bad after a while. Is that true? All of mine are several years old, Mark in Richmond. Well, Mark, actually, surge protectors do go bad. Now, the reason they go bad is not because of age, but because of environment. You know, the, uh, have, they, have they suffered through power surges. You see, the protective components in a surge protector are metal. It's a metal oxide varistor, a metal oxide varistor. They call them MOV devices. So these devices suppress the voltage by shorting out whenever there's a surge. But every time they short out, part of the device is damaged a bit where the short out occurred. And over time, if it shorts out too many times, the MOV will no longer function properly and it will no longer provide uh, protection. That's the reason that many high-end surge protectors actually have a red light or a green light that says surge protection working. And then as soon as the MOVs are in a failure mode, the light goes out. But not all surge protectors have that. 
Now, if your local power grid is dirty, which means you've got a lot of voltage spikes in the day, or if you've got frequent electrical storms, you might consider replacing your surge protectors every fall after the storm season. You should definitely replace them immediately after, if you're after a, a, a direct strike on the power grid by lightning. If, if there's enough power to, you know, to to you know to throw out a lot of your surge protectors in the house and damage a lot of electrical equipment, chances are all your surge protectors are bad. Now it may be cheaper to get a whole house surge protector. Actually, I know I I did that. I've got some of the campuses that I built. Rather than put surge protectors on all the uh, computers in the entire campus, I I put a whole building surge protector in at the input. And that way, it uh, you know I, I had one device that could protect the entire building. Now you can buy. I went to Amazon, and you can buy a whole house surge protector for around a hundred dollars, but it's got to be put in the uh, where your main electrical panel comes into the house because all power that comes into the house must go through that surge protector. Now I'm going to guess that you're not an expert at dealing with uh, you know the main fuse box coming to the house, so I. <laughs> I would Consult suggest get an electrician. Yes. <laughs> and an electrician can install the whole house search for about a, for about $150. I mean, it's, it's probably an hour's worth of work for him, but he knows exactly what to do. So that means for $250, you can protect the whole house. Now, I checked out the uh, – I went to, to Amazon, and there was one Eaton Ultimate Search Protection, third edition. On Amazon, it's uh, $99. And it had 10,000 reviews, and its overall rating was 4.8. People really did like it. And it has two lights on it that says surge protection working. But if you get a direct strike and that surge protector flips or it starts shunting the voltage, you're going to have to replace it. Now, the good news is uh, you probably won't need an electrician to replace it because you can just swap it out. You don't have to add any more wiring. Once it's just make wired. certain that you turn off all the power before you do that. So best of luck with your surge protectors. You know, that's wise advice to get an electrician involved because electricity is a very unforgiving thing, is it not? It is. It <laughs> is. Now, some of the more expensive surge protectors, they actually have a, a removable MOV panel. So what it is, so if the MOVs are all blown out, you can just pop it out and stick in another one. But if you get a surge protector with a removable MOV panel, usually those are higher capacity units for bigger buildings. And uh, uh, it's probably not worth it because then you'd be spending, uh, you know, $250, yeah. $300 for the surge protector. And it may just be, you just replace it every time you get a you, you, you get a major lightning strike near the house might be the cheapest way to do it but that's a that's a great idea and you know I never I knew that they went bad but I didn't know why but it makes sense and the, the, the you know the removable MOV board is a that's a that's a really good idea if it you know if it makes fiscal sense yeah, to do that that it's so you just remove it like a like a fuse yeah or a filter or something right something like that yeah, yeah and so uh, and you can take these, you can take, you can take the, you know, I've taken apart surge protectors and looked at them. I mean, the MOVs look I'll, like little I, transistors sure you have. and they have, they have inductors in their coils because the coils actually provide inductive resistance. And so you got coils and MOV devices in these surge protectors. And, and really the more money you spend on a surge protector, the more internal uh, components they have and the better they are. So you really do get what you pay for in a surge yeah. protector. We got an email from Doug in St. Louis. Dear Doc and Jim, I was cleaning out my closet 
And I found an old game, Age of Empires. And I loved playing that game when I was younger. So uh, my, my son has an Asus gaming PC with Windows 10. So I think, well, why don't I just install this game on my son's computer and play with it for a while? So I installed it on my, on my son's computer and had an enjoyable time playing with it. It was fun as always. And then I turned off his computer. And when my son turned the computer back on again, the screen started flickering really badly. The screen resolution was all messed up. He turned it off, turned off the computer, and then he turned it back on again. He got the same result. He, I, I, in, I tried to install the latest uh, video driver because I thought, well, maybe that's the problem. So I installed the latest video driver, but I just can't get rid of this misbehavior of the screen. <laughs> I hope I didn't break his PC <laughs> putting on my game, <laughs> you know. Usually it's the kid ruins the BC, right, not, exa- not well, the dad. <laughs> we're getting to a point now where it's the, the old man and technology syndrome, right? It is. So, well, this Age of Empires game, this was, I mean, this came out, you know, 25, 30 years ago. That was re- released in the last century. It was amazing it would even install, actually. Now, since you've already installed the latest video driver, I would simply do a system restore. You restore it, the, the operating system back to a, a time point that is before you installed the game. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and so the, I mean, this is probably going to work for you really well. That's, that's one reason I have the system installed. So simply click on the start button, type the words in, in that little search box, create a uh, click, uh, system restore, and then you click on create a re- restore point, And then you click the re- system restore button. Next, follow the prompts, follow the prompts there to restore your system to a, to a point that was prior to the installation of the game. And your system actually creates, anytime there's a change in the operating system, it creates a restore point automatically. So you will have several restore points that you can go back to. And if you and if you go back to a restore point prior to the game installation, the game will be gone. And you can just uh, rest assured the computer is going to work just fine. But uh, will, will yes. the boy be able to figure out that dad was messing around with the computer? I think the boy already knows it, and he's probably he's probably going to have to put parental controls on it, as opposed to child controls. Wouldn't that be called? It would be reverse parental controls. That's right, reverse parental controls. (laughs) Okay, we got. See what he's going to have to do. He's he's going to have to revoke his dad's admin rights, and he's Uh going to have to make his father with a guest account which is not an admin account so he can't install anything but you know what the dad the dad response to that is as long as you're living under my house and using my internet it's my computer yeah that's i pretty much think that's that's what the response would be (laughs) now if the son knows enough he could actually what he could do he could leave his login account as non-admin then he could create another account which is admin and just not say anything to his dad and then the next time his dad tries to install something, it won't work. There you and go. just never never say anything. Right. That's the smart way, right? That's right. We got an email from Emily in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Dear Doc and Jim, can I block posts from a Facebook page without unliking the page? I've got a really good friend of mine that recently set up a Facebook page for her business. And she asked me to like it. So I liked her page, and she was happy with that. Now I receive at least a dozen posts from her a day advertising all the stuff on her business page. And really, I'm just not interested in any of it. And I'd like to block it without 
unliking the page because she's a friend. I don't want her to think that I'm blocking her posts. So, and I want, I don't want to unlike her. I just want to get rid of those posts. Well, it's very easy to, um, to get rid of the posts coming in from her page without unliking her. What you, what you want to do is you want to unfollow her page. So you've got liking a page and following a page. Right now you're doing both. You're following as well as liking. So what you want to do, you visit your, you log into your, your Facebook account, then you visit your friend's, your friend's Facebook page, hover the mouse over the following button, and then click unfollow this page. And then in the notification section, just click all off. So you get no notification from that website and you'll get no posts from the website because you now you're not following it, but you're still liking it. So she'll have no idea that you've done this. Best of luck with that. <laughs> you know, I think I think this is a common question. I, I think I think people may actually like to take this advice. I know there are some people from my high school that you know that that linked up with me on Facebook, and some of their posts are just obnoxious. So uh, I do that for them. Do I you just know? I just unfollow them so I don't have to see these obnoxious posts. You know. Uh, they they were uh, they were great friends in high school, but they've they've de- they, they sort of went over the deep end, and now they're and now they're just crazy. So they had high school when you were growing up. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they were. Sorry. Well, I was in high school. Yeah. Well, we were all in high school together, and uh, and so but you know over the years, they, you know people change once they get out of high school. They do. Yeah. We got an email from Helen in Rockville. Dear Tech Talk. I recently got my first iPhone. It took me a while to figure it out, but I just love it. Now, the question is, should I jailbreak it? Now, my brother, who's a big techie guy, says I should jailbreak it. Then that way I can install any app that I want. And he said when he, when he visits me this, uh, you know, this over the holidays or Thanksgiving, he'll jailbreak my phone for me so I can, I can do all the kind of stuff that he does. Now, what's your opinion about jailbreaking? Should I do it or should I not do it? Helen in Rockville. Well, Helen, you should not jailbreak your iPhone. Apple has designed an operating system that is a closed system. The iOS operating system greatly limits what you're able to do with your phone on a technical level in order to prevent you from accidentally causing serious issues. This lockdown also prevents malware from taking control of your phone and using it to steal personal information uh, and generally racking havoc for you and for other people. The locked down iOS installation only allows you to do things that are considered to be safe. And that includes only allowing you to install apps from the official app store. You see there are unofficial apps that, that may actually have embedded malware or may be dangerous to install. And what Apple does, they, they actually review all the apps and make certain that they are safe to install before they allow them on the uh, app store. Jailbreaking the device removes Apple's built-in security measures, allowing the user access to the innards of the operating system and install apps that haven't been subjected to the vetting process by Apple. If someone does not have technical skills required to safely access the innards of their operating system, they really shouldn't be doing it because you could you could brick your phone or you could severely damage it. Now, if your if your brother is a technical expert and he knows what he's doing, it may be okay for him to jailbreak it because he's not going to do something stupid. But I'm gathering that you don't have the technical savvy that he has. So, in my judgment, you should not jailbreak your phone. 
Listen, we love your emails. We do. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. And in the southwest regions of the Washington area, you can now listen to us on 107.7 FM HD 2. Loudoun County, it's 104.5 FM. Learn about more of the programs at Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Paul Barron. Paul Barron is a Polish-American engineer who is a pioneer in the development of computer networks, including packet-switching techniques. Paul Barron was born in Grodno, Poland, April 29, 1926. By the way, that location is now called Belarus. Ah. His family moved to the United States May 11, 1928, and they settled in Boston and later in Philadelphia. His father, Morris... Baron opened a grocery store. Now, uh, Paul graduated from Drexel University in 1949 with a degree in electrical engineering. And then he joined the Eckert Marchley Computer Company, where he did technical work on Univac computers. That was the first brand of com commercial computer in the United States. In 1955, he moved to Los Angeles and he worked for Hughes Aircraft on radar systems. While he was out there, he got a master's degree in engineering from UCLA in 1959, and then he started the PhD program, but he had to work because he had to earn money, and he didn't have time to pursue his PhD as well as pursue a career, so he dropped out of the PhD program, and he started working for the Rand Corporation. Now, if you remember, 1959, this was the sort of the peak of the Cold War, and we were worried about you know, the Russians sending over nuclear missiles and attacking the United States. And, and we were always worried about, could we survive a nuclear attack? Because remember, the method was mutually assured destruction. 
the MAD technique. We each had missiles pointed at each other, and the deterrent was that if you kill me, I'll kill you. Those were scary times back then. Well, Rand was working on a uh, an idea that we needed to develop a communication system that could survive a nuclear attack. I mean, suppose that Washington, D.C. were attacked, Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles, and those are major communication hubs. Could we still maintain communication within the country? So he started working on a survivable networking technology. Now, the problem with tele telecommunications up to that point, it was point-to-point -point communication. Like if you, if Washington, D.C. called Los Angeles, you would actually set up a connection that would go all the way through the country, and it, it might, and you would get a, a, a circuit set up that would connect Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles, and that circuit would go all the way across the country. If one of the nodes in that circuit failed, the call would fail. So there was no redundancy in that method of... Uh, of, of, of setting up communication. So they were trying to do something other than circuit-switched networks, which is what we had back then. So he started working on a, uh, a system that was, that, that was based on a distributed relay node architecture where you have a whole bunch of nodes, and then you, you basically send a signal from one node to another node to another, and it's relayed until it gets to the other end. And... And if one of the nodes goes out, you simply, through your routing algorithm, you simply send it through another node. So there's no unique node, there's no unique point of failure. You could send it, you could send a, a message from Washington to Los Angeles you, over multiple pathways through multiple nodes. And then even if half the nodes in the network would, would fail, the message would still get there because it just could be relayed through the surviving nodes. So they did a lot of, of modeling of this, and they discovered that the network was very resilient even when 50% of the nodes were lost to nuclear battle. So he published his work in a RAND report in 1960. Now, he needed a proof of concept. So he started working on a, uh, a, you know, a proof of concept and basically have a computer to every node. And then you would, uh, you would basically store and forward a message from one node to the next node. So he, he, he basically set up, and he and his team developed the first store and forward data linking switching protocol that's, uh, that would store and forward at the uh, hardware connection level from one node to the next. He set up in that, in that proof of concept, he set up a, uh, a, a routing algorithm called link state distance vector routing protocol. And what that would do, it, it would constantly look for remaining nodes and if a node disappeared, it would simply update the routing the routing table so that it would route the message through another node that was surviving. And that was the, that was the first uh, routing algorithm that had ever been developed in, in his proof of concept. And then he also developed something called connection-oriented transport protocol. This was a very important concept. This was basically where you take a message and you break it up into short segments. He called them segments, and later they called them packets. And each of those segments is routed over a different route through the, through the network, depending on what the routing algorithm says. And then at the other end, they're all assembled back together to give you the message. So you, you basically have smart computers at the endpoints that are disassembling, that are basically breaking the message up into packets, 
and then reassembling the packets at the other end and putting them in the right uh, in the right order. And so that was very uh, that was very uh, innovative at the time. Now that is the exact opposite of what the telcos did. The telcos. Uh, had very expensive equipment at every single location because if one node fails, the whole the whole circuit goes down. And what he was doing, he's saying, look, these nodes at the inter these intermediate nodes, these can be cheap. They don't have to be that reliable because if one goes out, we'll just route around it. And so this was the exact opposite of what the telcos were doing. And it did not require expensive gold-plated components to be reliable. Now he had to start selling this thing. And so he went out, he started giving presentations. And, he, and when he gave a presentation at Bell Labs, the AT&T engineers, they scoffed at the whole idea of non-dedicated physical circuits for voice communication. They said Barron simply did not understand how voice telecom works. Um, and they thought this was just a stupid, stupid idea. But of course, at that time, AT&T made their money by selling circuits. So you would you'd make a long distance call and if it would, and if the circuit traveled over a long distance, you paid a very high rate for that long distance call. So back in the day, calling California was a long distance call and was probably pretty expensive. Or if you call another country, it's really expensive because you got to get a circuit all the way to the other country. And so this was a different business model than they had. So that was kind of the the the, the foundation of it all. Leonard Kleinrock uh, then developed uh, some theoretical basis for packet switch networks. It, he did his PhD thesis in 1961. And so now the the under Barron's leadership, the basic, the core technology for uh, for packet switch networks was really developed, the proof of principle. There's another guy, Davies, in, uh, U, in the UK, who independently came up with the idea of packet switching networks. And he called them not segments, he called them packets. So the name packet switching was actually coined by, by Davies there in the UK. Actually, Barron called them message blocks, not, not segments, message blocks. So it was a message block switching network. And then using Davies' name that came out in 1965, I think, they now called them packet switch networks. Then in 1969, DARPA started uh, developing an inter-networking protocol that, that could connect all of their networks. So you see, they had uh, networks with all their different research labs. They had a wireless network in Hawaii. They had multiple networks that had various types of, of, of physical circuit connectivity, and they wanted to find a way to inter-network them all. So they started the ARPANET, which was an inter-network of networks, internetwork, and that's where the name internet came from. And so they started developing the ARPANET back then, and they developed the protocol TCP/IP, which actually embodied the idea of the transport layer reassembling the packets. It had the data link layer actually making the point-to-point -point connection. It had the network la layer with the routing protocol actually routing it from node to node to node. So it it, it had the so the uh, TCP/IP was actually a four-layer uh, protocol, four-software layer protocol for running on the internet, and and DARPA, DARPA, this was actually TCP/IP was really developed developed by uh, by Vint Cerf. He was out at the University of California, and and so under under the under contract with uh, with DARPA, and uh, and so Vint Cerf and the team they they convinced. And this was one of the amazing things. They convinced DARPA, actually back then it was called ARPA, Advanced Research, they convinced them to 
to make TCP/IP protocol and for packet switching open source. In other words, unclassified, and the source code would be released to everyone, including the Russians, including our enemies. It was it was a staggering insight because making TCP/IP open source actually unified the entire world of networking. You see, at one point, IBM had their own networking protocol. Novell had their network networking protocol. Every company had their own proprietary networking company, and we had these islands of networks. And once TCP, TCP IP came out, it became the de facto standard for all internetworking. And also, it was integrated, the protocol stack was integrated into Unix, which was now being released to the universities. And so all the universities had Unix machines. They all had the TCP/IP protocol stack, and TCP/IP just took over. Now, so Barron was the guy who actually came up with that. Now, now in 1968, he uh, he was founder of the Institute for of the Future, and was and he helped many companies in Silicon Valley develop networking technologies. He went on to found several other companies in the, in the 80s and early 90s that involved packet switching technology for voice, for television, and for mesh networks. In addition to his innovation in networking products, he's also credited, get this, for inventing the first metal detector. <laughs> Not it, was a doorway gun, it was a doorway gun detector. So they would they put this inductive loop in the doorway, and if you walk through the door with a gun, it would it would ring a bell. Mm -hmm. That was back that was that was back a long time ago. Now Barron died in Palo Alto, California at age 84 in 2011 due to complications from lung cancer. Now at his funeral, many of his colleagues said that Barron believed that innovation was a team process. And he never sought credit for himself, never. He always felt it was the innovation was a result of interaction of people and that the team should get the credit. I mean, for instance, he uh, made a point to, even though Davies came up with packet switching networks five years after Paul Barron came up with his, uh, with his message block uh, switching network, he made a point to say that Davies independently developed the technology, independently, uh, you know, created it, and he gave Davies credit for packet switching. He never tried to take the limelight for himself. And he also, this, this harkens back to the days of open source software, and at the, at the formative stages of the computer industry, people were working on these things for the betterment of humanity. He, he didn't do it for money, really. I mean, he, 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 he never... He never became super rich. I mean, he did start companies, but his he was always motivated on developing technology for, for for humanity and for humankind. So there you go. Everything you need to know about Paul Barron, the inventor of packet switching networks back in the early 60s. Hope you're paying attention because the knowledge you just gained can be turned into free food by playing the pop quiz. It's uh, Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, now southwest of Washington. You can listen to us on 1077 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County, we're heard on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, Featuring Mr. Big Voice. With musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Ah, uh, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, sit down, I'm putting, I'm, I'm motioning for everybody um, to sit down. They're sitting down. Oh, thank you, you know, you, you, Jim, it's are you sure for, they're sitting down? I'm positive. I'm here with them. You're virtual. It's really okay. tough to tell on the uh, the crowd cam here in the studio. Okay, so you've got crowd, everything there. Accent on out. crowd. Well, this is not simply a radio show. It's no. a classroom of the airways, yeah. and we have to assess whether the class has been listening and learning, and we do that with a pop quiz. To get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get tickets to fine dining at one of our restaurants at the campuses when they open, and uh, after the pandemic. And you will also get an A-plus for today's show. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about Paul Barron. He was the inventor of packet-switching net, packet network technology. Now, he started working at it Rand Corporation. What motivated him and what motivated Rand in the first place to pursue packet-switching networking technology? If you know the answer to today's question, well, you know what to do. Pick up the phone, give us a call. Dialing from west to the Rocky. It's 877-936-9333. If your jet ski is beached on a pile of fish scales east of Playa del Church, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If your Univac model has left you for someone younger in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's disinfected hourly with Clorox injections. 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, thank you very much. Let's have a tip of the week right now. Yes, okay. The tip of the week is you can get Microsoft Office 365 for free if you're a student or a teacher. And that affects really? just a lot of people. Yeah. Now, if you meet the requirements of the program, you can download and run Microsoft Office 365 on your PC, Mac, or other mobile devices without having to pay a thing. 
All you have to do is a verifiable and valid school-supplied email address. That would be an email address that ends in .edu. That's all you need. You simply register your email address on the Microsoft site, and you'll qualify for the free software. You don't even have to go through your school. You just provide your verified email address. They'll send you an email to, to make certain that you actually can talk to that email address, and then they'll, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll sign you up for the Office in Education program. Now, what you get to do, you get the, once you are approved for this, you get the latest version of Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and OneNote for up to five PCs or Macs and up to five mobile devices. You'll get Office Online for uh, Office Online for in-browser in editing, collaboration, and co-authoring using Microsoft Teams. And you'll get free OneDrive storage, and you don't pay a penny. So if you're a student, you want to visit the page uh, to enter your school-supplied email, and you simply go to, uh, and I'll, see, I'll, I'll post the link on Monday, but you can simply search for Microsoft Educational Products Office. And I think you'll come up with the same link that I'm going to give you. But that is a great tip, and it's going to save you a lot of money. We do not have a correct answer. Doc, why don't you ask the question again, and we'll take a short break, and we'll come back after that. Okay. Earlier in the show, I talked about Paul Barron. He, of course, in, in developed packet-switching techniques. Now, he was worked for RAND Corporation. RAND Corporation was ch had a challenging pro problem back in the 60s, and this packet-switching network was designed— to solve that problem. Okay. What was the problem? What was the problem? And here's the number to call. Well, it was 877-936-9333. Why, Mr. Big Voice? Oh, he's out in the, he's out smoking, Doc. You know how that he's happens, He's out smoking. Right? Yeah. I know. Yep. Yeah. It's Saturday morning, and this is Tech Talk Radio on 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. The virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University technology. Let's talk about the trivia of the week. Okay, sounds good. 
Now, this is the first YouTube video. I'm going I'm to set this up, and then Jim is going to play that video for you because it is very, very insightful. Mm -hmm. Now, this first YouTube video was uploaded April of 2005 by the co-founder of YouTube, Jawed Karam, while he was vi visiting the San Diego Zoo. Now, since it was published, it's received 116 million views, and since then, YouTube has gone on to become the most popular video sharing service on the internet, with over 400 hours of video uploaded every day. No, 400 hours per minute uploaded every day. To put that in perspective, you'd have to watch YouTube 24-7 from birth until retirement <laughs> to consume every minute of the vid of, of up YouTube videos that have been uploaded in a single day. Okay, now here's the thing. Uh, he went to the zoo. He's standing in front of the elephant of the elephant pen, and he had these momentous words to share with us to launch YouTube. I wish I had a drum roll, but here we go. All right, so here we are in front of the uh, elephants. And the cool thing about these guys is that, is that they have really, really, really long um, fronts, and that's that's cool. And that's pretty much all there is to say. Um, I think there may have been some inebriants involved in that, uh, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> this, this is what came to mind when I heard that clip. All I need is some tasty waves, cool buzz, and I'm fine. I'm so wasted. Uh, I mean. <laughs> you know, it, it, he did sound a little inebriated. He sounded, that, he sounded very much out of it. But if you can imagine, that was the first YouTube video. <laughs> and look what YouTube went on to become. Uh -huh. So you, you can see that the co-founder of YouTube was more of a code writer yes. than a content creator. I can see. You can sort of see that really clearly. All right, guess what? We have somebody who'd like to play the game here. Okay. And uh, we're going to go to line one. Yeah. And this is MC. MC, good morning. How are you? Good morning, all is well, Jim uh, and Doc. Uh, the answer is uh, that the, they were worried that if there was a nuclear attack, that uh, the one-line communication uh, will, will fail. Uh, so he had to come up with a multiple uh, uh, packets or whatever he called it, uh, so that uh, if one fails, they will go to the next and so that the communication will still uh, go through. Very good. That is correct. That is correct. And you saved and a us. Very MC. good technical answer. You saved us from having to uh, <laughs> ask the question again. So there you go. And you answered in essay form, which is always great. So hang on a second here. We're going to send you back to Andrew. He'll take your information and we'll send the prize out to you. It's uh, Tech Talk Radio that you're listening to on uh, Federal Network, Federal News Network. Wait a minute. What do you hear? Oh, wait a minute. We played the wrong bit there. Okay. All right. Never mind. We're just going to go to break. It's uh, Saturday morning. This is Tech Talk Radio on 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, 1077 FM HD2, southwest of Washington and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. I'm Did you get, your, you really get your jacket sleeve caught in the door when it closed? Yeah, it's, yeah I'm very, I, have to, I, I, stay, I stay far away from that door while yeah, it's in action. It's, it's hefty, hefty, definitely. Today I, today I want to talk about open source culture. I started thinking about that when I was talking about Paul Barron yeah. and ultimately what came the development of TCP IP. And the Department of Defense, even though this was a critical uh, Cold War technology, they decided to make it open source for the good of the world so that uh, networking capacity could be distributed worldwide. That was extremely insightful. And the reason that TCP IP became the dominant networking protocol is the fact that it was open source. And uh, I'm really impressed with the, with the tech leaders back at the time convincing the generals that they should do that. But open source software, it's a culture. It's, it's not just going, say, onto GitHub and getting free code. It's sharing. So when you go to become an open source code developer, you will actually contribute to ongoing projects. So you will look at an ongoing open source project, and there will be a list of to-do things, th things that they need developed. So you look through the list, and if there's something that, that you're capable of doing, you can contribute code to the project. And then the code is reviewed by the project managers. It goes through vetting. It goes through checking. And if, it's, and if it makes it to the end point, your code is incorporated into the final open source release, version release that, that, that comes out periodically. And so people uh, join the open source community because they want to give back. They want to share. And what happens is that if a company embraces open source, they can develop products much faster. You've got the two that you've got closed source or proprietary software where you develop it all yourself, you keep it a secret. And uh, what companies have discovered that if they open the core code up to the open source community and they contribute to the core open source code and the open source community contributes to it, that they can develop features much faster. For instance, LinkedIn basically is, was an open source company and they could accelerate the development of their entire platform because they embraced the open source community. And so it made a, made a huge difference. Now what happens is that 
The core components are open source, and then a company will take the open source code and they'll add additional features to it that make it proprietary to them. But the underpinnings of what they're doing is purely open source, and it's important that the company contributes to the open source code pool as well as use it. The other thing that uh, that open source does, it keeps people from patenting stuff and then, then other companies can't use it. So it's a very excellent uh, excellent movement, and it has produced some of the best code. For instance, well, I've already talked about TCPIP is open source. Firefox, it's a web browser that competes with Internet Explorer. It's open source. Open Office is available for free. It's open source. It competes with Microsoft Office. GIMP is a, um, is a graphic tool that competes with Photoshop, and it's free. So sometimes when I want to you know, edit my photos and I don't want to have to buy an expensive version of Photoshop, I, I view GIMP. I, GIMP is a powerful graphics tool. It's a Moodle, funny name. <laughs> yeah, GIMP. It's, it's a funny name. It probably is an acronym. Uh, maybe you can look it up. It's probably graphics something, or it's probably an acronym, GIMP. Uh, we also have the Moodle Learning Management System. Now, our online platform is Moodle. It's open source, and it was developed by, uh, by a guy out, out of Australia as an open source platform. And, um, and it competes with the proprietary platform Blackboard that was actually, it's a company that's, that's right out, out of Washington, D.C. And we've used Moodle for years. FreeBSD, it's a free version of the Unix operating system, as well as Sun's Open Solaris. That's also open source. So Sun Microsystem em embraced the open source, the open source community. And their open source Solaris operating system is in that area. MySQL, we teach this a lot at Stratford, that's an open source database. Plus you've got Ingress and Enterprise DB. These are also open source database packages. So, and there, the list goes on and on. There are many, many open source packages and it's a great culture and it has really helped accelerate the development of technology. Now, let's talk about the big controversy of the week. I want to make certain that we can get to that. Yes. Because it has just been a huge, huge controversy. You've heard about, the, uh, about Twitter blocking a story about Joe Biden and his interactions with uh, his family with China and with, and with the Ukrainians. And uh, that came out, and it was negative to, toward Joe Biden. And Twitter immediately blocked it. Uh, Twitter uh, and anybody that that linked to that site, they blocked their account. They even blocked the account of the uh, press secretary for the White House because she she linked to that news article. I mean, the Senate linked to that article, the Judiciary Committee linked to the article, and, and Twitter blocked the Judiciary Committee's website. So they really did a huge overreach, and uh, they've since walked it back. But it brought into perspective this issue, and here's the issue. And I'll, I'll explain it. It all boils down. It's around Section 230. It was Internet legislation. It was passed into law as part of the Communications Decency Act in 1996. Which is interesting. Became, you've, you've talked about this before, and now I it have, is front I have and talked center. about it before. Now I think i got to go to a little, little bit more detail. Yes. And it was codified as Section 230 of the Communications Act of 1934 in a revision of that original act. And so— Section 230 has two parts. They, they actually passed Section 230 because back in the early 90s, when these Internet companies were just startups, uh, there were some major lawsuits against them that, that, that had the potential of putting them out of business. 
And Congress said, look, we've got to protect these startups, so we need to shield them. So they wrote Section 230 to shield these startups. That, that, that was really the motivation. Shield them from lawsuits. And, uh, but now these, these companies have become monopolies, and we no longer have the need for Section 230 for them. We may have the need for other startups. And so there, there is a certain valid reason for it, but they just don't want to eliminate 230. They just want to revise it. Now, yeah. 230 has two particular clauses. The first clause uh, is C1, 230C1. It provides immunity from liability for providers and users of interactive computer services who publish information provided by third-party users. So they said these are platforms, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Google, they're, they're, they're platforms, and people post stuff on the platform. And if somebody posts something on the platform that's libelous, the platform is not at fault, according to Section 1. The, the person who wrote the article is, is accountable for that. So they said these are neutral platforms, and they should not be held accountable for what third parties post. That's Section 1. But more problematic is Section 2. C2. It's called the Good Samaritan Protection. And it says it protects them from civil liability for removal or moderation of third-party material that they deem obscene or offensive, even if it is constitutionally protected speech, as long as it's done in good faith. Now you can see how broad this is. Yeah. So they're saying, well, being good Samaritans, we need to protect Joe Biden, so we're just going to block that. And, and you could read this and you said, well, we're going to block it because it was taken stolen emails from a hard drive and we don't think it should be public. Whatever they want to say, they can say it. And this clause, this C2, the Good Samaritan clause, is so broad and so nonspecific that it just protects them from everything. So what has happened is these companies have been using the Good Samaritan clause to basically put their finger on the scales and decide who gets to publish and who doesn't get to publish. And on average, it hasn't been a fairly determined decision. So that is the that is the issue here, and uh, they're now probably going to redefine the Good Samaritan clause. I know there are a couple of actions that are going on right now. The FCC is having a hearing because this is part of the Federal Communications Act, which is ma managed by the FCC. So the FCC says they have the right to interpret the law. And so they're going to go into Section C2, and they're going to define where the Good Samaritan law, where how to interpret the Good Samaritan law. And I think they're going to put guardrails on it where you can, uh, you can eliminate things for the wrong reason. And that's, that's what they're going to be doing. So what do we... So listen, <laughs> we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And check us out on the website, www.stratford.edu. And tell them you heard about us on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.